0: Part Three, Chapter Seven of the Uttermost Star. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Piano Roll Two Six Two. The Uttermost Star and Other Gleams of Fancy by Frank W. Borum. Chapter Seven A Divided Diaconate it is part of the poignant pathos of a minister's life that the good old men who as his first officers fathered him in his callow youth fall into their honored graves before he is well launched upon his long career like the pilot who steers the vessel through the narrow and treacherous channel to the harbor's mouth and is dropped as soon as the ship is once tossing on the open sea Those revered fathers in Israel leave the young minister as soon as the initial difficulties have been safely surmounted. I confess that as the years have multiplied behind me, I have felt an ever-increasing longing to go back, just for once, to the queer old vestry in which my first deacons were wont to assemble, and to find myself once more surrounded by those rugged old stalwarts grizzled and gray who welcomed me to Mosgiel nearly a quarter of a century ago i looked into their faces for the first time as i stepped from the train at the end of my long long journey from london to that little new zealand township they were standing the centre of a large and excited multitude on the railway platform in the moonlight and nobody thought of shaking hands with me until those solemn elders had approached and gravely welcomed me, how my heart quailed that night as I gazed into their venerable faces, how ridiculously young and inexperienced I felt, but I soon discovered that behind countenances that were like granite cliffs there lay a great wealth of human tenderness. They pitied my loneliness, for had they not, each of them, crossed the same wide seas in the days of long ago? and deep down in their hearts, I think that each man felt that I had come to bury him, and the thought brought a new softness into all their breasts. During the twelve years that I spent at Mosgiel, they one by one slipped silently away. I was their first minister, and they were my first deacons. I dare say that the Mosgiel Church has been excellently served by its officers since then. But no group of faces assembled in that vestry could look to me like the apostolic successors of the old men of whom I am thinking today. Of the brave battles that were fought in that old vestry, I could, if I would, tell a stirring tale. The congregation had no idea that such tremendous debates ever took place. It's our practice. Woolley explained to me at the first meeting i ever attended it's our practice always to lay a matter unanimously before the kirk the minority never says a word after we leave this room and so it came to pass that no echo of the great debates held in that vestry ever reached the church meetings at the larger assembly it was always my duty to announce that the deacons recommended that certain courses of action be pursued and the matter passed without discussion as a rule the faces of the men who had made up the minority at the earlier meetings were a study at such moments but only the chairman had the opportunity of surveying those lightning flashes and thunder clouds only once did the argument in the vestry become so heated as to be worthy of classification as a quarrel and as it has proved my only experience of the kind i have promised myself the satisfaction of seeing it placed on permanent record it was gavin surnames were regarded as a redundance among these men who made the proposal that led to all the trouble gavin was severely practical he had a keen eye for the cutting of the hedges the weeding of the paths, the painting of the buildings, and all that kind of thing. A most useful man was Gavin. He was absolutely innocent of any aestheticism. His one criterion of church music was its volume. He fairly squirmed under a quotation from Dante or Browning. I always associate Gavin with a certain annual church meeting in order to lure the settlers and their wives from the distant farms and homesteads it was our custom to supplement the annual business meeting with a coffee supper on this particular occasion the strategy had been more than usually successful the place was crowded and the business had simply romped through the evening was quite young when the end of the agenda was reached before i asked the ladies to bring in the coffee i said is there any other matter with which we must deal yes cried gavin springing to his feet there is we ought to have some rules drawn up concerning the lending of church property now there are those urns they are lent to all the organizations connected with the church for their socials and soirees and the members borrow them for weddings and housewarmings." AND NOBODY CARES HOW THEY ARE RETURNED, OR WHETHER THEY ARE PUT BACK CLEAN. NOW THIS VERY AFTERNOON, WHEN I CAME DOWN TO SEE THAT EVERYTHING WAS IN READINESS FOR TONIGHT'S SUPPER, I FOUND HALF AN INCH OF MAGGOTS IN THOSE URNS. IT WAS A MOST INCISIVE AND TELLING SPEECH FROM HIS OWN POINT OF VIEW, BUT A PERCEPTIBLE GLOOM FELL UPON THE COFFEE SUPPER. IT WAS HAPPY FOR GAVIN THAT THE ELECTION OF OFFICERS WAS OVER, had it followed that speech the ladies who had been busy over the refreshments all the afternoon would have voted against him to a man but to come back to the quarrel it was thomas who led the opposition thomas was our treasurer and the man who got church money out of thomas was regarded in the light of a genius i can see him now a massive old man of flinty and wrinkled countenance with an odd way of looking searchingly at you over his spectacles. I should have been frightened of Thomas, but he tore all fear out of my heart on the night of my induction. I arrived in Mosgiel on a Thursday night. The induction took place on Friday. When it was all over and the visiting ministers had departed, Gavin, Thomas, and I found ourselves standing at the gate together. "'And have ye no coat?' asked thomas in surprise oh no i answered airily i didn't think i should need it and i reached out my hand to say good-night to my astonishment the old man took off his own and insisted on my wearing it if anybody saw me on my way home they must have wondered what horrible disease could have reduced me from the bulk that i boasted when that coat was made for me to the modest dimensions that i possessed that night a great theologian was thomas as soon as i announced my text thomas took a huge notebook from his breast pocket and a stubby blue pencil from his waistcoat on monday morning thomas would be at the man's door looking as though in the night the church had been burned down or the treasury pilfered when the study door had shut us in he would very deliberately unbutton the big breast pocket and draw out the ponderous notebook with its terrible blue records the unthinkable glory of god he would read holding the book close to his face and then looking severely at me you spoke yesterday of the unthinkable glory of god did i thomas i replied timidly fearful of prematurely committing myself you did he would say ye ken i took a doon at the time Then out from another of his immense pockets came a well-worn Bible, and, from a list already prepared and drawn up in the notebook, he read passage after passage to show that the word unthinkable was improper and misleading. After I had committed old Thomas to his grave, I felt a little ashamed of the maneuver by which I circumvented this habit of his i can see how it is thomas i said to him one monday morning when his criticisms had been a little more searching than usual this all comes of trying to preach without a manuscript i have not had sufficient experience to enable me always to use the precise theological term and the consequence is i fall back on the second best or even an inaccurate one i begin to see the wisdom of reading the sermon such blemishes as these would be less likely to occur i knew that a manuscript in the pulpit was poor thomas's pet aversion and surely enough the old man came on monday morning no more i shall never forget the meeting at which gavin and thomas came to high words the scheme that gavin introduced that night was one that he had cogitated for months he had worked it out to the last detail He had plans and specifications and estimates, and as he enlarged upon his proposals, a look of fond pride came into his eyes. He already saw in vision the realization of his dream, and his soul was fired with admiration and affection. He sat back at last, leaving the plans spread out on the table. Thomas slightly inclined his head and looked at Gavin, over his spectacles—always an ominous sign. Then he slowly unbuttoned his coat and drew out the notebook that we all dreaded. He laid it on the table and very deliberately turned over the pages. Then he plied poor Gavin with a few of questions. To make a long story short, he resisted the proposal on two grounds—the one financial, the other theological. Gavin had given no indication as to the sources of revenue from which he expected to meet the proposed expenditure, and he as treasurer would never consent to apply the offerings of the congregation to such a purpose. And then, taking out his Bible and consulting his blue notes, he proved, from a text in the Prophet Amos and another in the Epistle of James, that the suggestion— was an outrage on revealed religion. I never saw Gavin more ardent, nor Thomas more determined. The position looked to me particularly ugly. In the course of the discussion that followed, some sharp exchanges took place. Gavin gave it as his deliberate opinion that the church finances had drifted into the hands of a niggardly old skinflint who could find a text or two to prove anything that suited him and thomas painted in lurid colors the doom of those stewards who squandered their lord's money and brought wildcat schemes into the house of the lord at last the proposal was defeated by a single vote gavin rose in anger stuffed the plans hastily into his pocket and strode out of the vestry i noticed however that in his wrath he had forgotten his hat which still reposed under the seat that its owner had just forsaken i knew gavin well enough to feel sure that he would not march home bareheaded we concluded the business of the evening about twenty minutes later and followed gavin out into the dark the church lay a good distance back from the road and a number of ornamental trees adorned the open space in front as we walked up the path through this shrubbery Davy, the youngest of them all, walked beside me and commented on Gavin's unseemly exit. I was on my guard, remembering the hat that from my coin of vantage in front of them I had seen under the vacated seat. I resolved to sound a note of warning. Oh, yes, I said to Davy, but in a voice loud enough for them all to hear but we needn't worry about gavin he's all right he thinks about this church all day and dreams about it all night he was here before you and i ever heard of the church and i expect he'll still be here after you and i have left it i'm hearing all that ye say exclaimed gavin emerging somewhat shamefacedly from among the shrubs and walking off towards the church for his hat It was a trifling circumstance, but I could tell from the tone of Gavin's voice that a work of grace was proceeding in his soul, and perhaps the incident paved the way for what followed. I went to bed that night like a man whose bubbles had all burst, whose dreams had all been shattered. I was excited and dejected and miserable. It was a long time before I could get to sleep, but when I did, I must have slept very soundly. I awoke with a start, conscious of a light in the room, of voices in the hall, and of my wife, a bride of but three months, in slippers and dressing-gown, bending over me. "'It's Gavin and Thomas,' she explained, "'and they say they want to see you.' "'Why, what time is it?' I asked, rubbing my eyes in astonishment. "'It's twenty to one,' replied she we want to see ye terrible particular cried a voice from the hall i nodded consent to their admission and in they came looking i thought extremely penitent gavin held out his hand and as he came nearer to the light i saw something glisten in his eyes this is no the way we meant to treat ye the next ye arrived he said and he pressed my hand again Thomas also approached. Ye must think as weel as ye can of us, he said, as he too took my hand. We shall need all your patience and all your love, and he must I teach us better ways. Gavin and I have arranged all about yon plans, and we shall easily fix all that up at the next meeting. Now ye must put up a wee bit prayer for us. I crept out of bed, and knelt down beside Gavin. Thomas and the mistress of the manse were kneeling on the opposite side of the bed. If the utterance of lowly and contrite hearts is specially pleasing at the throne of grace, that must have been a prayer-meeting of singular efficacy and acceptance. Even Thomas wiped his spectacles when he rose. Gavin took his arm to help him along the dark path to the gate. And so ended my first and last experience of diaconal strife. End of part three, chapter seven.